the Gospel of Mark together. The Gospel of Mark. And we find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 31. And we'll be looking through the end of the chapter. And actually, we'll look at, um, we'll at least be reading chapter 9, verse 1 as well. It's a, in, in your Bibles, it's, it's actually a slightly awkward break. We have to remember when these uh, were originally written, they were written as letters. They didn't have these numbers assigned to them. Um, that was done later. Uh, so it's a slightly awkward break there. So we'll go right through 9-1. Um, I read this week about a study that was done. Now, this study was done many decades ago. So it, it has to do with some... And my guess is the images today might be a little different than I think this study was done in like the 80s. Um, but what the study did is that it showed that people typically saw what they're, they're culturally conditioned to see. People saw what they're culturally conditioned to see. Um, so, so they would flash two images in front of people's eyes simultaneously. And... And what, what would happen, so for example, um, they, they would take a group of people that grew up in Mexico, and they would take a group of people that grew up in the United States, and at the time, like I said, they might do it slightly differently today, but at the time, they flashed one image of a bullfighter up to one eye, and an image of a baseball player up to the other eye. So... Very largely, predominantly, those who grew up in Mexico, so then they just flash them really quick and they'd say, what'd you see? And those who grew up in Mexico would say, oh, I saw a bullfighter. And those who grew up in the States would say, oh, I saw a baseball player. And they were doing the same images uh, to these folks. So they, they were seeing what their mind was, was telling them they, they should see, in a sense, what they were culturally geared and conditioned to see. Um, I think it's interesting because we do have to ask ourselves, how are we seeing Jesus, right? We've been talking about this now, uh, that idea for a couple of weeks. And are we seeing Jesus in a way that we're only culturally conditioned to see him? And, and that's actually a hard question. That's a question that has to go beyond this half an hour together. Um, that has to be a question that you, you really ponder on because there's a lot usually to untangle with that. Am I seeing Jesus only through my 21st century American mind? Am I seeing Jesus only through my political affiliation? Am I seeing Jesus only through my, my even my Christian upbringing? Because that can vary so Right? Some folks may have grown up in a very charismatic setting. Some folks might have grown up in a very uh, Baptist setting. Some, groups might, some folks might have grown up in the Presbyterian church and, and everything in between. And you say there's probably some things that I've become culturally wired to see Jesus this way. And I can tell you for sure that he's bigger than what you're seeing him. And, and there's probably some things that need to be undone in the ways that you're seeing him. Uh, last week we reflected on this two-stage healing of a blind man coupled with Jesus, uh, Peter's proclamation of Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was prophesied to come, the son of the living God. And I think what we're going to see is just as this blind man 
initially was healed in part and then later saw clearly, we're also going to see that the disciples are now, even with that proclamation of Peter, probably the spokesperson of the group, really only seeing in part. Um, this is going to be my beautiful technical diagram this morning right here. So, and so far, it's really interesting in the Gospel of Mark. So far, when you look at the first eight and a half chapters of Mark, predominantly the image of Jesus, and I know you can't all, all, can't all see this, so predominantly the image and the picture of Jesus that we're getting is that he's a teacher with great authority, authority from God, and that he's a healer and restorer. He's speaking truth... The truth of God, not unlike any of the teachers that I hear in the synagogue. And he's, he's so concerned and has such great compassion on people. And he has power to follow through, God's power to follow through to bring healing and restoration. And this has been the image that we've seen of Jesus over and over and over again in the first eight and a half chapters of Mark. And we get to this point, this point where finally Peter said, Jesus says, who do the people say I am? Well, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say prophet of old. And he says, he says, but what about you, right? We went through this last week. What about you? And Peter says, you are the Christ. Say, wow. Wow. You are the Christ. And, and, and here's the deal. What they assumed is that it can only go this direction from there to the eternal kingdom. Here we are. You're the Christ. So clearly, what you're going to do is now you're going to conquer your enemies, which are our enemies, which is Rome. You're going to establish your kingdom. And here we are to rule with you. How beautiful. But then what happens in the next several chapters, really all the way through chapter 15 of Mark, is we see the trajectory change. He's still teacher, he's still healer, he's still restorer. The predominant image we get is this, you're not going to, this is not big enough, is a suffering servant. It's, it's, it's this image um, it's this image of Psalm 22 and this image of Isaiah 53. And if, you, if you've never read those, please go into those because those are written many hundreds of years before Jesus is even born on the earth. And, and all the things turn and he's, now he's constantly talking about, and ha, talking about and moving toward this suffering and the attitude of a lot of the people around him start changing and, and Jesus and we'll see this morning Jesus starts talking about what must happen and what he must go through that he's on this journey to a cross and then it's in chapter 16 that we get this the resurrected resurrected Lord. So disciples are thinking, what, they're, what they are culturally conditioned to think is, you are the Christ, now eternal kingdom. And what Jesus now, and we'll see this morning, you are the Christ, yes I am, but you're only seeing in part, because now you have to know the suffering servant. Um, Verse 31, he being Jesus, began, then began to teach them 
that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. So there you have it. Peter proclaims Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. In Matthew it says the Son of the living God. And now Jesus goes and he, and he uses this title, which is another title for Messiah. It's a messianic title. Um, it's, and again, it may seem a little strange to us. It was his favorite title that he used for himself. The son of what? Man. The son of man. So he doesn't, that's the title he uses for himself most often. Now it's actually a messianic title. It would have triggered for a, a first century Jew. Wait a minute. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel has this vision. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. But this is no ordinary son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men from every language worshipped him. His dominion and it is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So if he is being worshipped, he also be beyond man, right? Because you're to worship the Lord your God and he alone. So th this would have been a messianic title, but the other thing with, that's very interesting with calling himself the son of man is he's also identifying with what? Us, right? He's identifying with humanity. Um, the disciples are seeing him as Messiah. Jesus knows exactly what's ahead of him. It's, so again, don't miss that. He's like, he knows that the whole Sanhedrin, what he's talking about is this whole representation of the authority of Israel are going to turn against him. He's going to be rejected. He's going to suffer. He eventually is going to be killed and then he will rise again. He's got to change the vision of the disciples for what they're culturally conditioned to think Messiah to be. Um, the author David Garland says, a disciple must do more than get Jesus' title right. A disciple must do more than get Jesus' title right. The Son of Man must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. So yes, you're Messiah. Yes, you're teacher. Yes, you're healer. Yes, you're restorer. But Messiah must also, must also be suffering servant on his way to a cross for the sin of the world. And then finally, resurrected Lord. This is Messiah. But it's not a Messiah that they're conditioned to see. So in verse 32, it says he spoke plainly in other words, about this. In other words, he's not speaking in parables. He's not speaking in metaphor or allegory. He spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to what? Rebuke him. So now, first of all, there's aspects of Jesus in following him that should always make us uncomfortable. If you've got image of Jesus that it's like everything about him, you just go, oh yeah, that's great, that, that totally fits, totally comfortable, I'm at ease. Like there's aspects of Jesus that, that should kind of make us a little uncomfortable. Peter, Peter has just gotten something so right, so here we see that someone can go in an instant from getting something so right to now getting something so wrong. 
And, and he's just said, so he's just said, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God. And now he, you can almost picture him taking Jesus by the arm and going, listen, Jesus, listen, listen. You, you, you've got, you know you've got this wrong. And he starts rebuking him. And, and again, in Matthew, he puts together two words that we should not put together. Never, Lord. Like, that doesn't make sense. If he's your Lord... You're not like in the position to say, never, never, Lord. Peter sees Messiah only as he can see him. He sees him as triumphant ruler. He, he, sees, him, he sees him as the one um, that is going to set up his kingdom. He doesn't have a box to contain that Messiah must suffer. Like there's no, he, it's no comprende. He doesn't have a box that fits that. So here's what typically happens when we don't have a box that fits something. We throw it away. <laughs> we say, well, that can't be. It doesn't fit into my experience. It doesn't fit into my mind. It doesn't fit into my understanding. So I'm going to reject it. It's like an automatic, stop right there, never Lord. And the next scene is actually really hard to hear. I say see because I'm, I'm kind of visual. I imagine these things in my mind. I imagine the scenario. And, and, and Peter, who just proclaimed Jesus as Messiah, and, and again, Matthew tells us that he did this because, the God, because God the Father gave him the insight to be able to see him that way. Peter, who just says, Jesus, you're the Messiah. Jesus is like, hey, bless you, Peter. You, you don't see that because man made that known to you. You see that because the Father, my Father in heaven made that known to you. The next moment becomes a pawn of the enemy. Like the biggest enemy in the sense of the spiritual realm, right? Satan. And, and it says that Jesus, if you can imagine it, if Peter takes him by his side, it's almost like, Peter's kind of putting himself here. The disciples are here. And it says, now Jesus turns to the other disciples. How hard that must that? So Peter's where? Peter's behind his back. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Peter... And it very well may be, realize, a lot of people think that Mark got his, a lot of his um, gospel was influenced by Peter. So it very well may be Peter is telling the story, which is amazing how often the disciples are willing to show themselves in all their foibles and mistakes and screw-ups. And, like, we don't do that very well, do we? We want to clean it up and say, well, here I am, and show what a good hero we were. And Peter, clearly, Peter's probably telling this to Mark, man... Did I mess this up? This, uh, this had to have been a hard moment for Peter. And, and Satan is, what Jesus sees is that Satan is tempting him again, just like he did in the wilderness, just like he did with the Pharisees when he said, show me a sign, tempting him again to get off the course that will lead him to the cross. Never, Lord. No, 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 that's not Messiah. That, 
That's, that's not what Messiah does. Messiah does this. You're healer, restorer, teacher. You are the Christ. We establish the eternal kingdom. And, and Jesus, and when Peter does that and says, no way, you don't get the trajectory that we're doing here. He says, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. You have in mind the things of men. And, and, and when we get our minds constantly wrapped up in the things of men and really aren't being, having our minds transformed by the mind of God, by the word of God, we can find ourselves in the same position of Peter trying to stand in front of God going, oh, no, 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 you don't get it, you don't get it. And actually trying to hinder the work that God wants to do and thinking we're doing right by doing it. Peter thinks Jesus is going to vanquish his enemies, therefore I will vanquish my enemies. Peter thinks that Jesus is going to win, and therefore I'm going to win. You know, Jesus thinks that, that, that uh, Peter thinks that Jesus is going to rule, and therefore I'm going to rule. Jesus think, Peter thinks that Jesus is going to show all his greatness, and therefore everyone that is aligned with him is also going to be, have positions of greatness. And you know what? That's true. It's true. In a sense, that part he got right. But what he didn't realize is who the players were and what it was going to take to get there. The players aren't earthly, Peter. The enemy really isn't Rome and Caesar. There's a bigger thing that's going on because the enemy really is sin and the enemy really is death. And that's what I've come to conquer. And Peter doesn't see that winning is initially going to appear like losing. Strength is going to be displayed through weakness and meekness. Greatness is going to come through service, and victory is going to come through sacrifice. And life is ultimately going to come out of death. It's going to come from laying life down, not saying, you're my enemy and i got to take your life. No, I'm going to lay my life down for you. And sometimes I think when God presents us with, with truths that we simply don't have a box for, and that will happen if you're seeking his heart. That will happen if you're seeking his face. That will happen as you're working through his word. You're going to find truths that you just don't have a box for. And you're going to be tempted to say, whoa, 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 never, Lord. Or you're going to say, Lord, make my mind like your mind. Make my heart like your heart. Make my way like your way. Uh, verses 34 through 9-1. Then he, again being Jesus, called the crowd to him. So now he's expanding his circle with this teaching along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. And then he said to them, I tell you the truth, some of you who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. 
Jesus, like I said, now he's talking to the crowd. He's really, he's throwing his net even wider. And he's, there's this aspect where you hear him saying, hey, I've identified with you. Now you have to identify with me. And my way has to become your way. Later, you know, Jesus uh, talks to his disciples and says, hey, you call me Lord and teacher, right? But they have to learn that they have to do what the Lord and teacher says to do, <laughs> that he's, he leads the way. I, I want to say right off the bat, Jesus is not saying here that you have to work really hard to earn eternal salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying. Because salvation, when you take this in the context of all scripture, salvation is a free gift. You can't earn it even if you wanted to. Right? That's why we say things like, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's a free gift. It's only because Jesus died for your sins, the perfect sacrifice. It's only because he rose victorious from the dead that you will have victory over death. And it's only by putting all your life's faith and trust and allegiance in him that you find eternal life. He's not, he's not talking about earning your salvation. He's talking about the nature of Christian discipleship. And he says, okay, let me tell you what Christian discipleship looks like. And it's a person that is condemned by Rome to death. And it's the worst death you can possibly imagine. And that, that condemned person, knowing that life is over as they knew it, all they have left is to surrender themselves to that fate and carry the symbol of their execution to their place of execution. Kind of sounds like a Joel Osteen sermon, doesn't it? Yeah, so you just, here's what discipleship looks like. You're condemned to die, and you're on the path of death with a cross on your back. I <laughs> just sometimes I'm like, Lord, it is being What is Jesus saying? Now, the one thing I, I ask myself questions when I prepare sermons. I'm like, what? What? Like one of them is just like, what are you saying? <laughs> What's going on here? And uh Part of me was like, is the Lord saying that every Christian's life is like the most difficult life? And, and I, I think we actually kid ourselves to, when we do that. Um, listen, every life is hard in varying measures. Every single life. Because we all live together in a broken world. And for you to think that there's a lot of, especially Western Christians, that feel somehow feel sorry for themselves because they're Christians. And it's like... Listen, if you think because you're a Christian, somehow your life automatically is harder than an orphan in a third world Muslim country, you're kidding yourself. Or, or, or a kid in, even here, right, in the foster care system, bounced from home to home. Or, or millions of other people that have less resources and safety nets than we typically do. We all share in the pain of life. All of us do. And it, and it happens in varying measures. And some people just have less, like I said, safety nets than others. 
Is Jesus saying that the Christian life is one long painful drag? <laughs> and it's like, you should feel guilty if you ever have pleasure or joy. Like, if I only read these words from Jesus, I'd be like, hmm, <laughs> that sounds just like a constant, a constant walk of pain. And, but then you read, you know, the, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, kindness. Like, so the, 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 the apostles are constantly writing about the joy of the Lord, the love of the Lord. Even, even our earthly experience, there's one in, in Timothy. Um, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he tells them at one point in, in chapter 6, he says, you know, he's talking about writing to those who are rich among them. And he's like, tell them not to put, don't put their hope in their wealth. But then he also comments, he says that, that it's God who richly provides everything for our what? Enjoyment. So what is it Jesus saying? I... I I would be a fool to say, uh, in, in the next few minutes, I'm going to give you all of it. <laughs> but here's just a couple of quick thoughts. For one, though all of us, like I said, face some level of difficulty, there'll be specific difficulties that come with following Jesus. And again, these happen too in varying measure. Um, it depends on time and place. There are some that experience persecution to the extreme. And, and to be honest, again, we don't feel that, at least at this point here in the States. Um, but Jesus did say to his disciples in John 15, 18, if, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Keep in mind that it hated me first. That would have been under heavy persecution. That would, there, there would have been those who had to face death just because they said Jesus is Lord. And there's still people, there's still people today that have to do that, right? We, we, don't, we don't experience that. You, we might have some people look at us snidely or insult us or whatever, and the Lord speaks of that too in the Sermon on the Mount. But, but Mark's audience, a lot of them, I mean, there was those that would end up thrown to the lions. There were those that would end up as torches to light Roman streets just because they said Jesus is Lord, Right? Not Caesar is Lord, Jesus is Lord. And, and they had to remember that if, if, if for their master suffering came before final victory, so it would be for them. And even though our lives aren't at stake, um, if we are ridiculed, if we are misunderstood, if we are at times even abused, you know, or don't get that, whatever it may be, in the name of Christ, I think that we have to realize that that's not the shocking exception. That throughout history, the Lord says, that's what you should expect. And the Lord is saying, I have led the way in that. And if I am Lord and I am master, you really shouldn't expect anything different. John Phillips writes, if the world offered Jesus, the, the Lord of glory, a cattle shed for in which to be born and a cross on which to die, why should he expect that it, why should we expect that it should be, they would offer us anything else? Sorry, I didn't read that. Well, if for Jesus, the Lord of glory, a cattle shed in which to be born and a, and a cross on which to die, why should we expect that it would offer us anything else? But I believe as we, as we just take a few minutes to wrap up the themes here, I think there's a larger lesson going on here. And it has 
it's actually bigger than just this idea of not recoiling from persecution in the name of Christ, even in the face of death. It has to do with encompasses all of life and every moment of life. And even your micro decisions and your, your, your micro attitudes. Jesus isn't simply saying life may be hard. He's not calling just to a strict asceticism, this idea of giving up all pleasures. It's bigger than that. It's the idea that I would have complete surrender of my entire will to the will of God. It's to condition my heart to die to this, my will be done. And instead say to the Lord, like our master Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, all that self-denial can say is, Jesus leads the way, keep close to him. It's to have a love for Jesus in the gospel that exceeds a love for my own will. That exceeds a love even for my own agenda, even for my own comfort, and at times, even my own safety. And, and, and in this, Jesus says, let me give you a quick lesson in economics. He said, if you, can, if you, if you could gain the whole world... If, if the whole world was a profit to you, you could have what you want, uh, how you want it, when you want it. Would that be the price? Would that be worth the price of your eternal soul? You got however many years you've got here, whatever you want, whenever you want it, you can gain the whole world. Would it be worth it? It's It's economics. And, and then we can even go deeper. Does what the world satisfy that hole in my soul. Have you experienced it to be true? There was a novel written in the 90s. Um, I read this. One of the commentators used this and said that there was a therapist that asked the main character in this novel. He says, make two columns of your life. In one, write down all the good things that you've got. And in the other, write down all the bad things. So in the good, uh, in the good things of life, he wrote, professionally successful, well-off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched into a, a adult life, nice house, great car, as many holidays as I want. Sounds like a pretty good life. And then in the bad column, he wrote one thing, feel unhappy most of the time. And that's the way a lot of people feel who've gained the world. And Jesus lays out then this great paradox. Maybe we could say the great paradox. He's like, if you put your faith in me, if you follow me, even through suffering, even, even, even to the cross, even through sacrifice, even through self-denial, on the other side of this is freedom, and on the other side of this is resurrected life. And not even just out there somewhere someday, it starts now. That if you can learn to take up your cross every day in the name of Jesus, not just for self-betterment, in the name of Jesus, I will die to my will. I will say yes to your will. Through that dying to self, you'll find life. Walter Wessel says that Self-denial involves a fundamental reorientation of the principle of life. God, not self, must be the center of life. 
to the greedy. It'd be a reorientation to God's will and God's way that would call you to generosity. And you know what? Though you were greedy and you're trying to gain the whole world, if you say, I'm going to die to that in the name of Christ and I'm going to move toward generosity, you'll find life. And you can just go down the list. To, to the living, it would be sacrifice. To the ungrateful, it would move you towards thankfulness. To the bitter, it would move you toward forgiveness. To the anger, angry toward gentleness. To the indulgent toward restraint. To the disloyal toward faithfulness. To the fearful toward courage. To the prideful toward hum humbleness, humility. To the cruel toward kindness, and so on and so on. In the name of Christ. And, then the and thus the Christian finds that dying to himself, walking this journey with the Lord, taking his cross, is a road with the suffering servant, but ultimately it leads to resurrected life. David Garland, and, and it's just a couple of little quotes here, and I'm, I'm going to wrap up. David Garland, I love this. He says, Christians who give up their lives to God get self-fulfillment by not seeking self-fulfillment. Christians who give their lives up to God get self-fulfillment by not seeking self-fulfillment. Victory is going to come. The disciples will see the kingdom of God come in power like he promises in verse 9. I think he's talking about seeing... It's, it's teased in the transfiguration, which we'll talk about next week. They'll, see, they'll ultimately see the Lord die and rise again. That's the kingdom of the Lord coming in power. They'll see the Holy Spirit come upon the church like the Holy Spirit has never come upon a group of people before. That's seeing the kingdom of God come in power. But first, the Son of Man must suffer. And the Son of Man must be rejected. And the Son of Man must be killed. And, and for those who will come after him... They must not be ashamed or recoil from doing the same in his name, not just if I face a martyr's death, which all the, all the disciples but one did, but in every decision and how I handle my relationships and how I handle my money and so on and so forth, how I handle people when they hurt me, how I handle things when they go wrong. And, and then that great paradox comes. That as I'm doing that in Christ's name, as I put my faith in him as Lord and Savior, there's life. I close with this. Jim Elliott said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So, Father God, we just ask you to reorient our heart and reorient the, the eyes of our heart to see you more and more clearly. Lord, we are all conditioned to see you in certain ways. And, and a lot of those ways need to be stripped down and reordered by the Holy Spirit of God. That we might see you for who you really are. Lord, we know that in you is victory, in you is light and life. But there's also this call to discipleship that calls us to die to ourselves, to die to all those things that put me first and trust your will, your heart, your way. And that in that, 
you will bring life forever and now. So, Lord, as things have come to mind for different folks here, men, women, maybe even some of the kids, things that we're holding on to, visions that are not clear of you, ways in which things that we say never, Lord, because we don't fully understand, help us, Lord, to say, make my mind like your mind, my heart like your heart, my will to reflect your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.